0: Our psalm of the day comes from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord send forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn... All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. Good morning.
1: It is a great privilege to be with you today uh, as you're turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Uh, I am from Jacksonville, so it's a special thing time I can uh, make it up this way. I, Orlando's only two hours away, but Orlando feels like a different country in some ways. Uh, my dad always said, Jacksonville is really southeast Georgia, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, good to see some old friends. Uh, got to catch up with Bill and Sandy Waldrop this morning, haven't seen them in 20 years, and Bill was kind enough to remind me that he was probably my age uh, last time I saw him. Um, and I'll, I'll be having to figure that one out for a while. Um, but uh, grateful to Chuck for this opportunity uh, to, to be here. Grateful for the opportunity to worship with you on Trinity Sunday. So if you have Matthew chapter 11, I want to read from verses 25 through 30. Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, And are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, The psalmist says that the unfolding of your word gives light. And so we ask this morning that by your Holy Spirit, you would so unfold your word to us that we might behold the beauty and glory of your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in its pages. And as we behold him, may we be transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. And we ask it in his name, who lives and reigns with you in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Our text this morning brings together two themes that we might not ordinarily think of as going together. The theme of the Trinity and the theme of rest. Dorothy Sayers, the English essayist and literary scholar in the middle of the 20th century, published a book called Creed or Chaos. And one of the purposes of the book was to defend the importance and significance of creedal Christianity and included in that the significance of the doctrine of the Trinity. But she describes uh, a scenario of giving the average person on the street an exam related to the doctrine of the Trinity. What is the Trinity, she says. And this imagined answer says, the Father, incomprehensible, the Son, incomprehensible, the whole thing, incomprehensible. The Trinity is something invented by theologians to make things difficult. And that, for many of us, of course, would summarize how we think about the Trinity. And it's certainly true if you look at the broader culture, Ross Douthat, in his book, Bad Religion, says we are a nation of heretics. And by that, he means the kinds of Christianity and the kinds of religion that that influence the day-to-day talk of our news media, that that influences the, the websites we visit and the social media outlets that we peruse, are not those of Orthodox Christianity, but they are of the quirkier and the wackier kinds. So the Trinity is not something that is that attractive to our culture. It's a strange thing, and to many of us, it may be so as well. But the other theme, the theme of rest, is one we can attach to more easily. You listen to the radio these days, and you hear commercials for uh, these miracle beds that will give you not only a good night's rest, but the answer to all of your problems, right? And you can get one setting and your spouse can get the other setting and you'll wake up refreshed, you'll never have a problem again, right? We spend millions of dollars a year looking for rest, building great vacation sites, going on vacation. But of course, rest in the sense that the Bible speaks about it concerns more than just sleep. It concerns more than just the need for taking a break. It concerns that Ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment that we were made to find. Bruce Springsteen said it like this Everybody has a hungry heart. We're all looking for something to fulfill our hunger. We're all looking for something to quench our thirst. Behind every project we pursue, behind every journey that we embark on in our lives, we are hoping to finally arrive at a full and lasting rest. Well, Jesus in this text this morning says that these two themes go together, the Trinity and rest. It's a theme that Augustine recognized long ago in the opening paragraph of his book, The Confessions. He says, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And so we want to look at Matthew chapter 11 this morning to see how these two themes, the Trinity and rest go together. Now let me say something about the context of this passage that will help us better appreciate uh, what's going on here. Uh, Jesus in chapter 11 begins and we hear the story of John the Baptist who has been put in prison by Herod. John the Baptist, of course, is Jesus' cousin. He's the forerunner announced by Isaiah who's come to prepare the way of the Lord. He's the one who stood by uh, the Jordan baptizing those preaching the coming of the kingdom of God. And when Jesus appeared, He pointed His bony finger and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Well, this John is now in prison. And he's starting to wonder, did I get it wrong? Did I point to the wrong guy? I was a preacher of the kingdom of God, and yet here I am suffering, imprisoned, Under a wicked king. And he sends word to Jesus. Are you the one to come? Or do we look for another? Jesus is turning out to be a Messiah that is different than the one that John had expected. Shortly after this, we have the description of Jesus visiting several Jewish cities and preaching the kingdom of God and preaching the gospel. And it says that these cities roundly rejected him. They didn't want anything to do with him. They didn't want to accept his message. They didn't want to accept his kingdom. And so this is the situation of Matthew chapter 11. We've got John the Baptist, and Jesus has not met his expectations. We've got Jesus' countrymen, and he has not met their desires. They don't want to have anything to do with him. And yet Jesus responds to this situation with a church service. Jesus responds to this situation with a declaration of worship. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. But let's look at this passage this morning and and look at the way that Jesus responds uh, to this situation. And we'll see, first of all, that Jesus celebrates the mystery of the Trinity and invites us to celebrate it as well. And we'll see, secondly, that Jesus invites us to find rest in the Trinity. So first, Jesus celebrates the mystery of the Trinity. Verses 25 and 27. Let me read them again. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. You've hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to little children. Now, the the first thing that that is surprising in this passage, the first way that Jesus confounds our expectations is that while we might think the mystery of the Trinity is something that belongs to the theologians, something that, of course, the Bible reveals and certainly has an importance in its own place, but it's something that people maybe over in seminaries should think about, but not us ordinary Christians. While we might think that, What Jesus, in fact, says is that the mystery of the Trinity is something that the Father is pleased to reveal to little children, not to the wise in understanding, not to the scholar and the disputer of this age, but to those who, like a little child, receive the kingdom of God. And, of course, this is that kind of disruptive economy of grace that we have seen Jesus exercising throughout the gospel. He's been confounding expectations. In speaking of little children here, there's perhaps an allusion to Psalm 8. Remember what Psalm 8 says about the glory of the Lord and His majesty which is revealed throughout heaven and earth. But it says He has, out of the mouth of babes, out of the mouth of children, He has established strength because of His enemies. In other words, the way that God is displaying his majesty, the way that God is establishing his kingship is not with the help of the high and mighty, but actually he's confounding them through the praise of babes. And when Jesus comes into Jerusalem during the Passion Week, he will cite Psalm 8 when the children are crying out, Hosanna! And he'll say, this is being fulfilled. Well, this is... This disruptive economy of grace. God has not revealed the Trinity to the, the wise, to the scholars, but He's revealed it to little children. And it's a doctrine that we must receive as little children. One of the first Bible verses I ever remember memorizing, John 3:16. Might have been the first Bible verse you memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And I remember. Back then, thinking, only begotten Son, what is that? Well, I've got a couple theology degrees, and I don't know that I understand any more now than I understood then what that means. But that's okay. Because the point of the doctrine of the Trinity is not that we might understand God as God Himself understands Himself, but that we might receive the mystery of revelation as it has been revealed to us in his word. Here's the thing. Children don't need to understand theoretical metaphysics in order to know how to play baseball. Right? Children don't need to understand the, the mathematics that underlies music. They don't need to understand music theory in order to follow a tune and sing a song. And the same is true of us. We don't need to understand the incomprehensible mystery of how the one Lord God, the high and holy one who dwells in a high and holy place, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. We need to understand how this God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We only need to be able to follow the tune. We only need to be able to sing "Holy, Holy, Holy." We only need to be able to sing the Gloria Patri, the Doxology. Right? And this is the glory of the doctrine of the Trinity that God stoops down to reveal himself to children. And indeed, Jesus says, unless you become like a little child, you cannot receive the kingdom of heaven. But note, verse 26, that this mystery which is revealed to little children is something that the Father is pleased to reveal, it's His good pleasure to make Himself known. This word has already appeared in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, when the context of Jesus' baptism. Jesus has appeared publicly. He's been announced by John the Baptist. And you remember what happens in this great scene where the Spirit is descending from heaven in the form of a dove. And the Father, we hear the Father's voice. And what does he say? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well. Pleased. Same word. This is the mystery of the gospel. This is the mystery of the Trinity. That the Father who has been eternally pleased in his Son, the Father who has a beloved Son before all creation, and Jesus speaks in John 17 of the love that the Father had for him before the world was, that the Father who is pleased in his beloved Son is also pleased to reveal his Son to us. The joy that He has eternally shared in the Son is a joy that He wants to share with us. The great Puritan John Owen says we're never more like the Father than when we love the Son. And this is the life that God the Father is inviting us into through the revelation of the mystery of the Trinity. It's His good pleasure to make this mystery known to us. The father here is pictured as the the young man who who has the wedding ring. He's prepared to propose. He's he's been hiding it in the glove box for weeks. And the girl's looking at him because he's been acting kind of weird, right? Storing up this gift. He can't wait for the time to spring the secret. It's like a parent's, right? Leading up to Christmas Day where you've gotten the Christmas list and you've told the kids they're not going to get anything on it this year, sorry. But you've been buying, you've been hiding, you've been stowing away, waiting for the moment, right, when the revelation can be made in Christmas morning. This is how the Father is described in revealing the mystery of the Trinity to us. It's His good pleasure. He delights to make Himself known to us through His Son, by the Spirit. Note, though, the mystery that is revealed. And in verse 27, all things that have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. This description of the Son is central to the revelation of the Trinity. We've discussed already at Jesus' baptism how how the Father declares, You are My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Remember in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus asked Peter, Who do you say that I am? And He says, You are the Son of the living God. Chapter 17. At the transfiguration, we hear again the Father's voice. This is my beloved Son. And then in Jesus' last confrontation with the Jewish authorities in his gospel, you remember he asked them a question. And it's a question about Psalm 110, the psalm we read a moment ago. Whose son is the Messiah? Whose son is the Christ? And they say, well, he's David's son. And of course, from some perspective, that's correct, right? Jesus is born in the lineage of David. Jesus is a descendant of David. But Jesus asked the Jewish authorities, how then does David, speaking in the Holy Spirit in Psalm 110, say, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. if he is David's Lord, whose son is the Messiah, ultimately? And the answer, of course, is that he's the Son of God. And so after his crucifixion, when he has been raised from the dead, when he appears to his disciples and commissions them to make disciples of the nations, he commissions them to baptize in the name, the singular name, the singular name of God, which belongs to The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the mystery of the Trinity. And note how Matthew describes this Son in this passage. He holds all things in common with the Father. He describes the Father as Lord of heaven and earth, but then he says that all things have been handed over to me. He too is the Lord of heaven and earth. He describes uh, the mystery of revelation as the work of the Father. It's the Father's good pleasure to reveal the mystery of the Trinity. But he describes that prerogative to himself as well. The Son reveals the Father to anyone whom he chooses. And then he describes himself as sharing the unique knowledge of God. No one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. Here Jesus is referring to the unique, the incommunicable knowledge of God. What God alone knows. It's the way that Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. The Spirit searches the depths, even the depths of God. And no man knows what the Spirit knows. Well, Jesus shares the divine omniscience with the Father as one God. But that's not all. He shares the Father's sovereignty. He, he shares the Father's prerogative and Revelation. He shares the Father's knowledge as a Son. As one who eternally receives these things from the Father. And that in short is the mystery of the Trinity. One God in three distinct persons. Blessed forever. And so Jesus celebrates the mystery of the Trinity. He, he celebrates the Father's plan to reveal it to little children. He celebrates the Father's good pleasure to do so. And in doing so, He reveals His unique identity as the Son of God, equal to the Father in every way, as His beloved Son. But note second and very quickly that Jesus not only celebrates the mystery of the Trinity, he summons us to find rest in the Trinity. Again, verses 28 through 30, "Come to me all who labor and are heavy-laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light." We saw earlier that Jesus confounds our understanding. Whereas we might expect that God would reveal the Trinity to the wise and the learned, He has in fact revealed it to little children. And here again, He does the same thing. Where we might expect that Jesus will give the reward of rest, the reward of eternal satisfaction, the the reward of eternal fulfillment to those who have rigorously and perfectly fulfilled God's requirements. Instead, he promises it to those who are weary, to those who are heavy laden. Again, we see this disruptive economy of grace. It's neither the moralism of the right nor the moralism of the left that brings fulfillment, Jesus says. But it's to those who are the objects of God's sovereign mercy those who find themselves burdened and weary, who may find rest for their souls in Christ. Note that Jesus' invitation extends to all who labor and are heavy laden. Now, in the immediate context, it certainly refers to those who are weary, those who are worn down, By the demands of false religion. Later on in chapter 23, Jesus will rebuke the Jewish teachers for laying heavy burdens on the people. And of course, you understand this common theme that we see in in the Gospels, right? Jesus regularly refutes and rebukes the Jewish teachers for not merely teaching God's word, but then adding other requirements beyond God's word, right? And Jesus describes these as a burden. And moreover, he says it's a burden that you, the ones who teach these things, you yourselves aren't willing to lift it. But you require others to do so. And so certainly, part of the invitation here is to those who are burdened down by by the burden of false religion. By, By the burden of a religion that would teach us that we must live up to a certain mark, to a certain standard, if we are going to find the rest that God promises His invitation comes to them. Come to me. Only I can and will give you rest. But I think the invitation extends beyond that. It's all who are weary and heavy laden. Those who are weary and heavy laden through the demands of false religion, yes. But those who are weary and heavy laden from the burden of pursuing the american dream house and two kids can be burdensome to keep up sometimes trying to keep up with the joneses can be a burdensome venture sometime and to those who have found themselves burdened by that jesus says come to me jesus says Come to me, those who have grown weary in well-doing. We sometimes find ourselves feeling guilty when we're tired. We sometimes find ourselves feeling guilty when we're worn out. But not all weariness is a sign of sin. Sometimes doing the right thing can lead to weariness. Sometimes doing God's will can wear us out because we live east of Eden. We live in a world that has fallen we live in a world where bodies are broken and we grow weary even in well-doing. And so Jesus' invitation is to all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me and I will give you rest. Well, what's the ground? What's the guarantee that, that, that lies behind this invitation? That, that's the reason... That we who find ourselves weary may come to him and expect to find rest in him. Look at how Jesus describes himself. Take my yoke upon you, verse 29. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. Verse 30. My yoke is easy or good, my burden is light. Jesus doesn't come to us as the one we might expect. Jesus doesn't come to us as the one we might want. And the revelation of the Trinity doesn't come to us in the way we might think it would. Think about this. The doctrine of the Trinity is the most glorious article of the Christian faith. In the doctrine of the Trinity are all other doctrines comprehended. And we might think that when God was going to reveal his life to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he would reveal it on the top of a mountain. He would reveal it with a bright and glorious light. Some of us would perhaps admire the mystery of the Trinity and be attracted to this doctrine. Others might be scandalized and offended and and flee from it. But that's not how God revealed himself to us. He revealed the most wonderful and glorious and supreme reality about Himself to us through the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Through the lowliness of the incarnate Savior. And of course, this has been the theme throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew. Isaiah 60 describes the revelation of the glory of God at the end of time, and it says the Gentiles will stream to that glory, and they'll bring gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And Matthew tells us, yes, and the way Isaiah's vision has been fulfilled is how? The Magi coming to visit a baby? Here is the revelation of God's glory? Isaiah 40 speaks of the day when the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. And it will be prepared by the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And Matthew says, yes, right. Isaiah's promise has been fulfilled. But how? In Jesus, who comes from Nazareth. You have to understand, Nazareth is where the rednecks lived. The glory of God revealed in helpless babe. The glory of God revealed in one from Nazareth. The glory of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit revealed in one who is meek and lowly. And again, this is what chapter 11 of Matthew is all about. John the Baptist. He's scandalized. Are you the one to come? Do we look for another? But of course, what Jesus teaches us in this text is that while he may not be the Messiah that we expected. While he may not be the way that we would expect God to reveal the supreme and most glorious truth about himself to us, Jesus is the Messiah that we need. No, when Jesus brings the kingdom of God, he doesn't storm Herod's palace to set John the Baptist free. He storms the dominion of the evil one. He opens the eyes of the blind. He unstops the ears of the deaf. He sets loose the tongue of the mute. He heals the lame and causes them to walk. He comes to those who are weary and heavy laden and gives them rest. The high King of heaven comes to us as the servant of the Lord. And this is what Jesus is trying to teach us. In the very next chapter, Isaiah will be quoted to identify Jesus as the servant of the Lord, that humble, lowly one who won't bruise a broken reed, but who will bring justice to the Gentiles. This is who Christ is He comes to give rest to His disciples on the Sabbath day to allow them to to feed when they are hungry. He comes to restore the man's withered hand and make it whole again. He comes to bring us into God's everlasting Sabbath. In love, this Son of God who shares all authority with the Father who shares the Father's sovereign prerogative in making Himself known to His children, who knows all things as the Father knows in the fellowship of the Spirit, in love this Lordly Son stooped down to assume the form of a servant, to fulfill all the burdens of the law that we could not fulfill, to bear the burden of the curse of the law, that we would not want to bear. And through His resurrection, through His ascension, through His enthronement at the Father's right hand where He still serves as a sympathetic and faithful high priest, He pours out His Spirit to give us rest and refreshment now through the Gospel, to lead us into the Father's eternal kingdom, and to give us rest in God's presence. And so while He may not be the Messiah we expected, Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, is the Messiah that we need. And He says, Come to Me. I will give you rest. And this, of course, is where our two themes come together. The theme of the Trinity. The theme of rest. Come to Me. You see... Rest isn't just something that Jesus gives. It's not something that he could even say, go down the street two blocks, hang a right, you'll find it right there. He's not even the one who knows where it is. Rest is something that Jesus is. And why is that? That's what Augustine said. You've made us for yourself. And our hearts will only find their rest in thee. Why do we have to come to Jesus to find rest? Because he is the son of God. And it's only in fellowship with him that we can find rest. This is why he describes himself as the bread of life. every other meal you ever eat is going to make you hungry eventually. It's going to leave you hungry eventually. Every other drink you ever drink is going to leave you thirsty eventually. But Jesus is the bread of life. And when we receive him and we feast on him, we are satisfied with eternal satisfaction. He's the fountain of living water. When we drink from him, our thirsts are quenched in a way that we shall never thirst again. And he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And when we lay down all other pursuits, when we give up on all other journeys, when we will forget about all other quests to find fulfillment and heed his call and come to him and embrace him by faith. He has promised, with the promise of the divine Son of God who cannot lie, I will give you rest. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that it is your good pleasure through your Son and by your Spirit to give us rest. We thank you for your Word which sets before us the glorious wonder of your triune being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you for the promise of rest, a promise that has been made good for us through Christ's shed blood on the cross, by his glorious ascension, by his sending forth of the Spirit into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We ask today that you would let your word take hold of our lives. May we rejoice more deeply in you as our triune God. And may we taste, even now, of the rest that is ours in Christ. And we ask it in his name, amen.